0: In light of climate-induced risks and uncertainties like increasing extreme rainfall events and warmer temperatures, a team made up of research, extension and outreach professionals at Ohio State are working together to identify how to promote sustainability and resilience in the Eastern Corn Belt. They are also trying to understand how farmers can adapt to these changing conditions while supporting both agricultural production and the protection of our critical ecosystem. Meet three people heavily involved in this project this hour.
1: From the Ohio Farm Bureau studio, this is our Ohio Weekly, highlighting those who grow our food, fiber, and fuel, while examining issues that are important for farmers and their neighbors throughout the Buckeye State. Our Ohio Weekly is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side. Here's our Ohio Weekly host, Ty Higgins.
0: A project that focuses on the past and expected future climate conditions and how farmers plan to adapt has been created at Ohio State. Joining us this week to talk more about some of the findings are Dr. Robin Wilson, Professor of Risk Analysis and Decision Science at Ohio State School of Environment and Natural Resources, Dr. Aaron Wilson, Research Scientist at Ohio State's Bird Polar and Climate Research Center, and Dr. Mary Deutsch, Assistant Professor of Agricultural Economics at McGill University in Montreal. Welcome to you all.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ty. We, we're glad we can be here and talk about this work with your, your listeners. Uh, so, we've referred to this project in a lot of different ways but one way we've been talking about it is it's about understanding how farmers are adapting to climate in an attempt to kind of understand how do we uh, support farmers adaptations to the changing climate to increase the resilience of the agroecosystem. ecosystem and so we were really interested in not only understanding what climate's going to bring to the eastern corn belt that's our study region um, but then how our farmers how concerned are they about those changes what changes are they experiencing what sort of adaptations might they consider doing in order to be more resilient in the face of climate and then ultimately how do those dynamics between the way the climate is changing how farmers responding what does that mean for the regional economy what does that mean for food production what does that mean for water quality what does that even mean for carbon sequestration which has become an interesting conversation in the last couple months under the new administration but how do all of these things when we look into the future what, what might we expect to happen and how, again, might we intervene and engage to make sure that we can promote resilience, meaning still produce food, still protect water, sequester carbon, achieve all these goals that we have in, in these um, agricultural systems.
0: So we have a lot to cover uh, in this conversation. <laughs> and, and Dr. Joyce I want to I go to you next because I mentioned you were from the McGill University in Montreal, but there's an Ohio State connection there. What's your role in this project?
3: Yes, um, I was a postdoctoral researcher with uh, Robin Wilson, (laughs) so that's when that started my involvement in the project. Um, And the part that I've been looking at is the farmer behavior, farmer um, adaptation piece of this. So, like Robin said, looking at um, these very the likely climate change scenarios that farmers are likely to face, and then how they're likely to adapt, what actions they're likely to take on their farms, what they've taken already, and what they're likely to take in the future in response to this changing environment.
0: Dr. Aaron Wilson, uh, of course, you worked on the actual climate aspect of this. Uh, What were some of the data points you were looking at as you researched some of the past climate trends for our region? And and how is that information used in this
4: project? Yeah. So, you know, kind of uh, with our scope here across the eastern Corn Belt region, we really wanted to understand uh, the changes that were taking place here locally or regionally, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, southern Wisconsin and Michigan, and and not just looking at it in terms of how our mean climate might be changing or has changed, but looking at some of the extremes, uh, the climate extreme. We know we hear often about uh, the variability uh, in our climate and the ups and downs, and I think this spring is a very good example, for instance, of the types of uh, extreme variability we're talking about. So what we wanted to do is kind of narrow it down just a little bit to understand if we can You know, the extremes and how they're changing across the region. And so, certainly, there are several uh, impactful extremes in in terms of impacts on agriculture. So, we think about uh, our our winter's warming, for instance, uh, warmer overnight lows more than our summer daytime highs. Uh, These extreme precipitation events that we know of, the heaviest downpours, uh, really driving changes in things like uh, uh, nutrient and erosion, you know, nutrient loss and erosion from our fields. increased heat and humidity, so increase of actual water vapor, what we call water vapor in our atmosphere, leading to more uh, you know, stress in terms of uh, uh, heat stress and, and those sorts of things. So there's a lot of connections between the extremes, not just that it's getting warmer and wetter, because that's true, but we want to know a little bit more about those extremes as well. And how does that affect, for instance, planting dates and harvest dates, and, and how can we take steps to mitigate some loss there?
0: Dr. Robin Wilson, uh, I think the example that comes to my mind is something that uh, Aaron just mentioned there with the planting dates and the harvest dates that the windows seem to be getting a little bit narrower uh, as we see the climate uh, start to shift. Uh, What are some of the ways that agriculture might be impacted by climate change and is it all negative?
2: Well, it's not all negative, right? So there's the potential for longer growing seasons as well. So if your planting date in a given year kind of shifts earlier and your harvest date shifts later. You've got a longer growing season and so there's even you know opportunities for double cropping, which could be could be considered a benefit. So there are certainly some some opportunities, but like Aaron mentioned, I think what we hear farmers uh, concerned about and mentioning are those shifts in those dates, but the uncertainty and the variability in that. It's not like we're going to get a consistent longer season or a consistent shorter season. It's every year, it's a surprise. Um, and I remember in 2019, you know specific farmers saying you know i always thought we'll always get the crop in like no matter how late it is we'll get it in and then 2019 happened and crops never got planted and so those sorts of events and interestingly we um sent this survey that we conducted out in the late summer of 2019 and we <laughs> the timing of that was not on purpose um it's just kind of how it worked and we thought either farmers will be so frustrated by the weather that they'll see a survey with changing weather patterns on it and throw it away or they'll be so frustrated that they'll wanna weigh in. Um, so we actually kind of sent this out, I think at a, at, a, at a good time, I hope, where farmers were aware of these sorts of impacts and then giving us feedback on um, the impact that those sorts of shifts and the dates and changes in rainfall, or more importantly, like Aaron said, the timing of the rainfall, getting it all in the spring is not when you want it. Um, and so we are able to get their thoughts on how that's impacting them and how they might wanna respond.
0: Dr. Robin Wilson is professor of risk analysis and decision science at Ohio State's School of Environment and Natural Resources. That's within the College of the College of Food, Agricultural, and Environmental Sciences. Dr. Aaron Wilson also joins us this week on our Ohio Weekly research scientist at Ohio State's Bird, Polar, and Climate Research Center. And Dr. Mary Doige, assistant professor of agricultural economics at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Doige, uh, what did the survey ask in particular to these farmers? Uh, that, uh, and, and, and how was the response to this survey?
3: Well, yeah, well, for, and let me just say, too, that we had to kind of on the fly adapt the survey because it was um, implemented in late summer 2019 to just ask how they had experienced that spring and if that had changed changed their planting at all. But the survey asked about um, their current practices that they had taken on their farm, um, what kind of experience they've already had with climate change in terms of what changes they would noticed on their operation over the past 30 years, or I think we framed it as um, since they began farming. What changes have they noticed as the growing season become longer? Um, have things become more variable as their planting date where it used to maybe be more consistent and now it's becoming more variable? Um, and then asked what actions they've taken to deal with some of those changes, whether they have purchased new equipment to make planting quicker, whether they have changed the varieties that they grow, whether they've made changes to their crop insurance plans to kind of, to account for some of this variability. And then we gave them different scenarios based on Aaron's work um, about the likely impacts in the future of climate change and as presenting them with these scenarios and saying, now, if this was the scenario, if the planting date was 30 days sooner, you had this much more rainfall, what changes would you make to your operation in the future? Would you put more land in conservation? Would you purchase more equipment? Would you change your crop insurance um, plan? But again, just to kind of ask how they would change in the future, given this potential new scenario.
0: What did you find out? Are farmers actually thinking that far ahead?
3: Um, <laughs> so. of them are (laughs) some of them aren't (laughs) the in terms of the adaptations they've already taken on their farm it tends to be the more incremental adaptations so they made some changes to the varieties that they plant maybe looking for more resilient varieties um, to reduce some of that um, that variation they made some changes to their crop insurance plans maybe adding a little bit more coverage or a different you know switching to revenue insurance rather than just yield coverage installing more tile drainage maybe you know these things that they've already done kind of doing more of them and in terms of the future scenarios, they kind of came out into a couple of groups. So there was one group that whatever we would give to them really wouldn't make much more of an adaptation. Um, and these farmers tended to be older, you know, maybe more established in their ways um, and wouldn't be farming that much into the future. So weren't really thinking too much about what they would have to do to adapt to this climate, these changing weather patterns. And the ones who tended to adapt more, again, they were taking more of those incremental adaptations Um, So, you know, switching varieties, maybe installing more tile drainage, but the ones, if they were more likely to adapt, they typically tended or said that they would pass their farm on to future generations. Um, So kind of thinking more
2: of what would happen in the future, um, not just for them, but for their family members. And they tended to be larger farms. I think that's the other consistent kind of difference we yes. see is the, the group who were kind of like, nah, I'm not going to change anything no matter what the future brings. That was about a third of our farmers. And like Mary yeah. said, they tended to be older, operating smaller farms, using more traditional methods like conventional tillage versus more limited forms of tillage. Um, and they even reported less experience with climate impacts. Maybe that's because they've been doing it longer and they've seen seen more variation and they chalk it up to normal you know, variation in the weather. Um, but then about two thirds of our farmers to varying degrees did report wanting to change things. And yeah, like Mary said, it tends to be kind of doing more of maybe what they've done before, but as a way to, to mitigate that risk. Um, but again, we saw some of those differences where those groups did experience, you know, more of those impacts in a negative way, did operate larger farms, so probably have the have greater capacity to make these changes than the smaller farms do. Um, and then the one that we, we found, or I found most interesting as a behavioral scientist was those who were more likely to keep the farm in their family, they were the ones who reported the most adaptation in the future. And we, in behavioral science, we often study as humans how when we think about our legacy and we think about what we want to leave behind and um, how we want to be remembered, we tend to do more sustainable things. So I thought it was really interesting that farmers who were thinking about that kind of long-term transition were, you know, engaging in these strategies or planning to engage in these strategies to, to promote resilience.
0: Dr. Aaron Wilson, you know, I know you look at forecasts long and short term. What's your outlook for the future climate in our region and how much can we rely on the past trends to predict what the climate will hold in the future?
4: Yeah, so that's a very excellent and very loaded question, right? Because (laughs) we're limited in, in some aspects because all we can do is evaluate our models based on how well they perform over the historical period. That is essentially how we test the models and what we did for this project as well is to say, you know, we've got a number of models. In, in this instance, we looked at 32 different models in the simulations over an historical period to say, okay, how are, what trends are we seeing, you know? Um, and do the models kind of picked up on those trends? And, and yes, when we talk about getting warmer and getting wetter, clearly the models are picking up on that, but there's, there's good range. There's a range there uh, uh, across those different models. And so I think that reflects one, just the nature of our weather patterns over time. They, they, you know, we always talk about, you know, the butterfly, you know, the butterfly effect and in, in causing things. I often talk about from a weather perspective, you know, today, or maybe not during this time of the year, but, but say in springtime, we got a system coming off the of japan into the pacific ocean right five days later it's affecting us here in ohio there's a lot that can happen right from a weather forecast and that's why those weather forecasts change a lot certainly beyond three or four days so the idea here though from a climate perspective is generally where we do expect our models show warmer conditions warming conditions to continue to where by mid-21st century we're about three to five degrees fahrenheit warmer Than what we expected, what we saw over the say 1976 to 2005 period. And we're expecting more rainfall as well. As a matter of fact, a good indication of this is we recently switched our National Weather Service uh, 30 day window or 30 year normal period. And what we did was essentially drop off the 1980s and we added the 2010s. And just by doing that here in Columbus, we added a little more than two inches to our average yearly rainfall. And so that's just showing you the types of trends that we've seen and our models indicate that's likely to continue and to even intensify in some cases for some variables into the future. My
0: conversation with Ohio State's Dr. Aaron Wilson, Dr. Robin Wilson,
4: and McGill University
0: in Montreal's Dr. Mary Deutsch continues after this on our Ohio Weekly.
5: Brad, let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend.
6: Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio.
0: No matter what livestock operation you have, your manure is valuable. Pitmaster goes right to work from the moment you pour it in. It can cut thin crust and break up solids. Adding Pitmaster to your pits, lagoons, and across your fields can lower ammonia levels from your livestock facility. Pitmaster improves the consistency of your manure, so it's easier to empty your pit or lagoon. With less agitation, less fuel, in less time. To give Pitmaster a try, call Bandauer Fertilizer and Seed. 888 max Crop.
7: No matter where your travels take you, Ohio Farm Bureau membership benefits will follow. Before you check in, check out the wide variety of options Farm Bureau members have when it comes to hotel discounts. From Red Roof Inn to over 30 iconic brands offered through Choice and Wyndham, you'll be able to find the comfort level that's right for you. To learn more on how to save on your lodging needs, visit OFBF.org slash savings. Another valuable member benefit exclusive to Ohio Farm Bureau members.
4: Your projects are a big deal, so use equipment that can get the job done. CAT equipment sets the standard for the industry. The CAT product line includes more than 300 machines to handle a wide variety of duties. Ohio Farm Bureau members can save up to $5,000 when buying or leasing qualifying CAT equipment, plus a $250 credit on select work tool attachments. Learn more by visiting OFBF.org savings and click on the Caterpillar logo. Limitations and restrictions apply.
1: Where can your Ohio Farm Bureau member benefits take you? No matter the destination, Avis and Budget Rental Car will get you there. Did you know that Ohio Farm Bureau members can save up to 30% off base rates and are eligible to receive other rental car discounts, like dollars off or a free upgrade? So before you put that car in drive, log on to OFBF.org savings and click on the Avis or Budget logo, exclusive to Ohio Farm Bureau members.
0: Today, it might seem that all news headlines impact you directly. How will rural Ohio
6: recover from a global pandemic? A county eminent domain case heads to the Supreme Court.
1: Millions are still in need of reliable internet access. The nation's food supply chain is being challenged. For over 100
0: years, Ohio Farm Bureau has advocated for a strong Ohio food and farm community and will continue to engage on issues important to you because your growth is our future. Farm proud and farm strong by becoming an Ohio Farm Bureau member today by visiting OhioFarmBureau.org. You're listening to Our Ohio Weekly. I'm Ty Higgins, and this week, visiting with three professors that are part of a project focusing on the past and expected future climate conditions and how farmers plan to adapt. Dr. Robin Wilson is Professor of Risk Analysis and Decision Science at Ohio State School of Environment and Natural Resources. Dr. Aaron Wilson, Research Scientist at Ohio State's Bird Polar and Climate Research Center. And Dr. Mary Doidge, Assistant Professor of Agricultural Economics at McGill University in Montreal. Dr. Robin Wilson, you, we talk about how things are changing. What does that mean for, let's say, the future of food production?
2: Well, and that's why, you know, that's why we were really interested in this as we see the the agroecosystem as providing a multitude of benefits to society, right? We provide food, we provide clean water, we sequester carbon in an attempt to mitigate climate change. So there's a lot of really great things that can happen in that landscape. And the challenge I think for farmers is how do you do all of that? <laughs> Um, And so obviously the first thing they're probably thinking about is they've got to make a living, they produce, feed, food and fuel, and that's how they do that. And so um, there are obviously concerns about the impact that climate change will have on that goal alone um, in terms of their production. So if you get all your rain in the spring and not enough rain in the summer, that's going to be a problem. Um, And so what we found was kind of interesting is that the four kind of most popular responses from farmers when they were presented with these future climate scenarios Um, and Mary mentioned some of this, was to change their insurance coverage. So a kind of risk mitigation strategy of, well, if there's catastrophic failure, I just need to have the right protection in place. We also saw um, them installing more drainage tile, which makes sense because one of the biggest concerns is that rain in the spring. And then we saw two kind of more traditional conservation type practices. So putting more land into conservation programs, like retirement programs, and increasing their use of conservation tillage. So what we're hoping to learn in this project over the next year is if farmers are doing, all of those things are very different, right? You change your insurance coverage, you install drainage towel because right now you need to solve a problem. <laughs> you need to protect yourself from failure. You need to get water off the landscape. Putting land in conservation, limited tillage, that has some of these broader co-benefits. So we're interested in our models to kind of think about as farmers do these, these bearing practices, what does that mean not just for food production and which of those is gonna be best for increasing their ability to get a good yield on a regular basis, but what's, what's also gonna be helpful at not only doing that, but also achieving some of these other ecosystem benefits. Uh, so we're curious because we have another analysis we're looking at and what we're seeing in this analysis is that while all four of those are, are potentially popular adaptation strategies, the one that is most driven by concern about climate impacts, meaning bad things that have happened as a result of changing weather patterns, um, is installing more drainage tile. And so that's an interesting one to me, because that might solve the problem of getting your crops planted, but that might not help with some of our other challenges like around water quality. So we might want to be thinking about, okay, if we need to get water off that landscape faster in the spring, do we also need to To provide more funding for those edge of field practices to hold back that water and remove nutrients before it ends up downstream so we're hoping our project can help us think through all of those those goals and how do we support agriculture to achieve both.
0: These next couple of questions are, are really for all of you to, to weigh in on as we look at the big picture of this study from Ohio State. Uh, you know, we, we talked about climate practices, uh, water quality practices. Some, sometimes those overlap. In fact, H2Ohio funding going to help farmers of all sizes implement more cover crops, increase drainage water management, implement conservation crop rotations. How much do you think that a program like H2Ohio and other voluntary efforts that help farmers adapt to these possible changes will benefit the entire ecosystem?
2: I think it could be really beneficial. I mean I think that's what's exciting is you know a lot of what we offered as options to farmers in our survey are considered classic conservation practices. So like you said cover crops and limited tillage that's meant to improve soil health. Improved soil health is good for water quality, it's good for yield, um, it's good for sequestering carbon, it hits kind of all of those things that we can do in agricultural systems. And so I think there's a lot of potential there to be thinking more about how these different opportunities and programs can work together. And maybe, you know, one idea I've heard floated out there is if our traditional kind of public funds and public programs that support conservation and agriculture can kind of get farmers started, there's now these private opportunities like through carbon markets, for instance. So I think there's some neat opportunities here to better understand how all these pieces can can work together to achieve a, a variety of benefits.
4: Yeah, and I would agree with that too. And one, one of the things I think these multitude of opportunities kind of Uh, highlights is the fact that one climate change is very personal and it's localized. And so by having different options available to farmers, I think that that's a great opportunity where farmers get in on climate adaptation and mitigation. Uh, the other key part is that just fundamental science of understanding too, you know, how much carbon is sequestered with our cover crops and, and having farmers at the field level participate in that research, I think is critical to our understanding as we move forward as well. And so all of this plays into together for a for really a nice cohesive program and future, I think with uh, with farming here, in, uh, in Ohio.
0: How can our listeners find out more about this study in particular?
2: We have a website. Um, It is u.osu.edu forward slash agroecosystemresilience. So you can go there. We've got um, short videos just kind of overviewing different components of the project to date, what we've accomplished. We even have a full report of the survey results. So if you want to go see exactly what percent of farmers are a little bit concerned versus extremely concerned (laughs) about the weather you can see that there. Um, So we encourage people to check that out. And this project will wrap next summer. So by next summer, we hope to also have finished the ecosystem services piece where we'll be thinking about, you know, the impacts of climate and farmer behavior um, and decision making across this suite of services that agriculture provides. And then ultimately, like I said, the, the policy analysis and thinking about the economy of the region and how can we intervene to make sure to promote a healthy economy and and to ensure that not only food production continues but other services as well.
0: We'll put that link on the description of this Our Ohio Weekly at org. Dr. Robin Wilson, Professor of Risk Analysis and Decision Science at Ohio State School of Environment and Natural Resources. Dr. Aaron Wilson, Research Scientist at Ohio State's Bird Polar and Climate Research Center. And Dr. Mary Deutsch, Assistant Professor of Agricultural Economics at McGill University in Montreal. Thank you so much for being with us this week. Thanks,
2: Doug. Thank you, Doug. Thank
0: you. Our Ohio Weekly continues after this. This is our Ohio Weekly. I'm Ty Higgins. From a battlefield to a farm field, this is to the beat of agriculture. Today in our weekly segment, you're going to experience the story of one soldier who felt a sense of duty back in 2001. However, after a series of life-changing events, he still has that same feeling of direction, but in a different type of field.
8: I'm Matt Shar from Schneiden Hutton, Ohio, and I am the owner-operator of EDS Ranch. I was in high school when 9-11 happened and I remember uh, just watching that go down. And I just kind of thought for our generation, like this is the time for people to step up. I left for basic training and then I went to airborne school, uh, immediately following that. From what it sounded like, I'll go down to Fort Bragg and get signed into the 82nd Airborne and then we're gonna, I'll be back up for Thanksgiving Well, whenever I arrived in my unit at Fort Bragg, the guy said, like, normally we'd have you outside in the sand pit, making you do all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, But here's the packing list. We're going to Iraq next week. So I called my mom and I'm like, Mom, I'm not coming home for Thanksgiving. We went to Iraq for four months. And that first night, I remember hearing a, a firefight going on out in Baghdad. And it was, you know, I just laid there looking at the the ceiling of the tent, like, this is what I signed up for, like, it's time to do what I signed up to do. I've had bullets whip right by my head, so close you can feel the wind. You know, if I was six inches to the right, it would have hit me, I would have been shot. If someone's injured and they're laying out there where there's fire, you know, bullets are flying, someone's going to run out there and get them. You know, people don't think twice about it. It's just, they don't, it doesn't even cross their mind that this could be the last decision I make on this earth is to run out here to help my buddy. It's love for your for your fellow soldier, you know. I live with these guys every single day, you know. You do everything together. So whenever, you know, danger presents itself, you know, that's your family. You're going to do whatever you have to do to keep your family safe, you know it was actually uh, an afghan soldier um he he was injured with an ied and was uh had a double amputee on his legs and we were able to get out there um uh, and put tourniquets on his legs what was left of his legs to stop the bleeding we laid our lives on the lines for the afghan soldiers just as much as we laid our lives on the lines for you know our own team I was nineteen years old whenever this happened, and I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. I slept in a humvee on Christmas Eve, My first year, like away from home, my first year in the army, as the morning was coming up, you know the, the smells are so intense there because everyone's cooking with fires, so they're getting the fires going. And this little old Iraqi lady, her gate opened, and her house was, like, right by one that was destroyed. And she had a plate, and it was all these this lemon cake. And she came right up to our truck and handed it over to us. To this day, I, I, I really remember that, because that really says something about, like, just humanity. I was actually working on a, our Somali partner forces vehicle. We were welding big plate steel. So I had to have this thick welding jacket so I didn't get burned because all the flag was falling on me. I mean, we're dog tired, but I'm like too tired to take this welding jacket off. And I'm sitting there with my friend and uh, we start hearing boom, boom, boom. A mortar round comes through the roof of the breezeway and it lands like two feet behind me and and goes off. And it knocked me down and when i got up another one went off really close to me and i can see the blood's running out the bottom of my pant leg on my back i had two places and i ripped that welding jacket off i'm like did i get hit like bad in my back i, I feel it burning and the the medic he puts his finger right where that shrapnel hit me and he's like no it just burnt you well the reason that it, it stopped it was because i was wearing that thick welding jacket Something told me, just keep the jacket on, but it probably ended up saving my life. I didn't leave country, I stayed down there and just uh, took a week and was bandaged up and uh, continued mission, but it's got me jacked up pretty good. That's kind of when EDF Ranch started planning like, hey, in in the next like 12 to 24 months, I'm gonna be around full time. I had already joined the Farmer Veteran Coalition. We applied for the fellowship for beekeeping supplies. The reach that that fellowship gave us, the leg up, we can't even you know we can't even quantify it. For such a relatively new you know nonprofit organization, it's just awesome, and that it's a good tie-in with the. That's just military culture, you know. Everyone, you know, everyone's trying to help each other, and we never take that for granted. I didn't want to be a farmer. I wanted to be a special forces operator. You know, My life could have went two ways. I could have uh, never got over it, so I could sit around and cry about being the old war vet that got injured and couldn't do it anymore, or I could get, get on with my life and get to living and find my next purpose, and that's what I challenge everyone to do that's tra- transitioning out of the military or thinking about starting a career in agriculture You're in control of everything that you do.
0: Thanks to Matt Shar for telling his story and for his inspiring bravery. A special thank you to every member of the armed forces and to the Farmer Veteran Coalition for the great work they do in assisting veterans transition into the next phase of life. Happy Independence Day from all of us at Ohio Farm Bureau. I'm Ty Higgins, back after this on our Ohio
5: Weekly. Fred. Let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend.
6: Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio.
0: As a farmer-owned cooperative, Ag Credit knows a little extra capital can make a big difference in your operation, paying for new equipment, meeting unexpected expenses, and covering payroll. That's why they're returning $31 million to their borrower owners through their patronage program, lowering the cost of borrowing by 38%. What other lender does that? At Ag Credit, they're proud to share profits with their members. Visit agcredit.net to learn more about how it pays to do business with Ag Credit.
5: We believe in food.
1: Grown in the fields of Ohio.
7: In clean air and water.
5: And in preserving farmland forever. We believe in opportunities for the next generation. For nearly 100 years,
1: Ohio Farm Bureau has been bringing people together.
5: Join us in the journey.
9: Together.
1: Together.
5: Together with farmers.
9: Visit togetherwithfarmers.org.
5: At Georgia Boot, we build our boots just like the people who wear them. Tough, dependable, and hard-working. You need a boot that you can count on. That's why Georgia Boot always uses rich, full-grain leathers and comfort insoles to maximize your all-day comfort. We've been building boots that way since 1937. You pick the best tools for the job. Why would your boots be any different? Georgia Boot is America's hardest-working boot. Go to GeorgiaBoot.com to see our latest promotions or to find a dealer near you. Welcome back to our Ohio Weekly. I'm Ty Higgins. Ohio has a new budget
0: for fiscal years 2022-2023. The $74 billion budget includes education reform, cuts to personal state income taxes, and investments to help keep Ohioans employed and to create more job opportunities across the state. It also checks many of Ohio Farm Bureau's priority issue boxes. To talk more about the wins for Farm Bureau and Ohio agriculture as a whole in Ohio's budget is Brandon Kern, Ohio Farm Bureau's Senior Director of State and National Policy, and Jenna Reese, the organization's Director of State Policy. Welcome to you both.
3: Hi, Good to be with you.
0: I mentioned a lot of wins, and it all starts, Brandon, with our Ohio Agriculture and Rural Communities Plan, uh, something we released earlier this year. A lot of those ideas and a lot of our major policy issues came through in this budget. How did that all work into the equation?
7: Yeah, this is something that we put forward at the beginning of the year and we shared with policymakers across the state at both, quite frankly, the the state and federal level. uh, And it outlined what we as an organization believe needed to happen here in Ohio, uh, the support we needed to have from policymakers. In the wake of, you know, a tough year coming back from COVID and just some general challenges that agriculture has faced over over the last years. And, you know, at the top of that list, broadband development, uh, supporting our logistics and supply chains, um, you know, like meat processing and, and our dairy producers, things like that. Um, we're kind of right at the top of that list. H2Ohio obviously continues to be important. Uh, but the, but that, the, the whole impetus behind that plan was this is what we want to present to policymakers, what agriculture and rural communities needed to move forward, um, and you know, we got to, we're really happy to see that a lot of support has been put in the state budget that really coincides with that action plan.
0: Jenna, many of these issues uh, were here well before the COVID-19 pandemic, but of course they were uh, amplified uh, due to what we saw in 2020 and the challenges across Ohio and across the country. In particular, one thing that you've worked on very hard is rural broadband. Uh, you have been at the forefront of that conversation with legislators from day one, and, and in this budget, 250 million dollars for the Ohio Rural Broadband Expansion Grant Program. Talk about the program as a whole, uh, what it is and and what it means for rural Ohioans.
3: So first step for that program was House Bill 2, which we were very supportive of as an organization, and that set up the Ohio Residential Broadband Expansion Program and had about 20 million dollars to start it off with, and then the budget contained 250 million dollars more funding for that program. So we're gonna see um, investment in last mile infrastructure that we haven't seen uh, at all because of this public investment.
0: Brandon, you mentioned uh, the the local meat processing issues that, uh, you know, it wasn't an issue so much until we saw more of the larger processing plants across the country go offline for a little bit there uh, in, in the early part of the pandemic, but it showed the need to uh, keep that food supply system moving in the right direction, which means more local meat processing and Uh, ten million dollars in this budget for the meat processing investment grant program. What is that?
7: Yeah, so it's a new grant program that's going to support small and medium meat processors. This is specifically for those more niche markets uh, to help. You know, a lot of farmers want to do direct marketing, direct consumer sales type stuff. Uh, Those types of meat processors that help support those types of activities are going to be able to benefit from this grant program. And they're gonna be able to use that to start up if, if it's a new startup or, or grow their operation. If there's someone looking to grow, we know there's a couple of examples of that around the state of Ohio. There's a uh, processing facility down in Gallia County who Gallia County Farm Bureau has been actively involved with trying to help them uh, look for resources to be able to expand their operations because they're, they're a victim of their own success down there and they really need to grow. So I think it's, uh, it's examples like that that this grant program is really gonna help uh, with access to to localized processing, which is
0: huge for our members, we didn't just support this bill; we actually helped put it together. Yeah. Talk about some of the behind the scenes and how Farm Bureau was involved.
7: Yeah, sure. I mean, this there's a lot of work that went into this. It's been you know, a couple of years now where we've been hearing from our members that something like this was needed and and, and needed to happen. Um, and so there's a lot of coordination uh, with our our friends in the different commodity groups, so, you know, pork producers, beef producers. Um, and working directly with legislative leaders um, to actually craft the language, what the requirements would need to be for the type of, of program that would be appropriate and really be helpful for agriculture in the state. Uh, so a lot of a lot of work gone into this, and, and has our organization's fingerprints all over. And of course, I'm working in conjunction with our with our partners and across the agriculture industry. So it's it's huge. It's a big thing.
0: Really. Jenna, uh, big support too for H2Ohio. Something that uh, Governor Dewine. Uh, put into effect a couple of years ago. We were wondering though uh, if it would be able to grow and expand and we obviously at Farm Bureau and and all of Ohio agriculture realize that it needs to in order for farmers to be successful in their water quality efforts. $170 million for H2Ohio. Uh, help me out where's that going and, and what's it going to help uh, the program do?
3: Yeah another program that has oh, Farm Bureau's fingerprints mm-hmm. all over it. H2Ohio like you said has $170 million total. Uh, $49.3 million of that per Uh, fiscal year is going to go to the Department of Agriculture and that will enable them to expand the program into 10 additional counties in the Lake Erie watershed.
0: I know that uh, it's not just hours here in the office and countless hours down at the State House. I think our members realize that too and I just wanted to thank you all for for your work on this. Uh, I know that uh, it takes a lot of communication, it takes a lot of skill, and a lot of attention to detail. And and thank you so much for making this budget so successful for Ohio Farm Bureau and Ohio Agriculture. Jenna Reese, she's Director of State Policy. Brandon Kern is Senior Director of State and National Policy with Ohio Farm Bureau. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. Always time. What will that Fourth of July cookout cost you this year compared to last year or even 2019? We'll have the details after this here on our Ohio Weekly. Farm Bureau Bank has built its entire existence around the lifestyle and needs of farmers. They're here to help grow traditions, give back to agricultural communities, and offer financial convenience for your unique way of life. Visit farmbureau.bank or call one of their personal bankers today, 800-492-3276, to learn more. That's farmbureau.bank or 800-492-3276. From sunup to sundown, Farm Bureau Bank is committed to serving you.
6: KSIH is a proud supporter of Ohio Farm Bureau. And thanks to a membership benefits partnership, Ohio Farm Bureau members receive a discount of up to $500 on every qualifying KSIH tractor and piece of equipment you purchase. This discount may be used with other promotions, rebates, or offers. So join Ohio Farm Bureau and pocket up to $500 in savings. Get your discount at OFBF.org. That's OFBF.org. With more than 300,000 horses in Ohio, the economic impact of the equine industry in the state is valued at $2.8 billion. Much of that value comes from the standard bred horse owners, breeders, trainers, and drivers who participate in the sport of harness racing in the Buckeye State. All supported by the Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association. Since 1953, the mission of the OHHA is to preserve, protect, promote, and serve the entire standard bred industry in Ohio and beyond. And the relationship between OHHA membership and Ohio's agriculture is undeniable. The farmers provide feed, bedding, and stables for the horses, and in turn those amazingly fast four-legged athletes provide a major draw to Ohio's county fairs bringing revenue to our rural communities. OHHA membership has its privileges. Members reap the benefits of having a strong voice for shaping statewide policies, receive continuous industry education, and valuable information in OHHA newsletters and magazines. Check out OHHA.com to find out how the Ohio Harness Horsemen's Association is making great strides for you. That's OHHA.com. Today, it might seem that all news headlines impact you directly. How will rural Ohio recover from a global pandemic?
1: A county eminent domain case heads to the Supreme Court. Millions are still in need of reliable internet access. The nation's food supply chain is being challenged. For over
0: 100 years, Ohio Farm Bureau has advocated for a strong Ohio food and farm community and will continue to engage on issues important to you because your growth is our future. Farm proud and farm strong by becoming an Ohio Farm Bureau member today by visiting OhioFarmBureau.org.
5: Brad, let me introduce you to one of the most important people in Peytonville. Is she the mayor? No, insurance agent. She must be really good. The best. That's why she chooses Nationwide to help protect all the families, businesses, and dreams in Peytonville. People really count on her. Seems like she's a local celebrity. She's a local legend.
6: Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company and Affiliates, Columbus, Ohio. Here in Ohio, we grow possibilities. By investing in the Soybean Checkoff, farmers can concentrate on running their operations, while the Ohio Soybean Council creates new opportunities for future generations. The Soybean Checkoff works to get new soy-based products on the market, builds relationships with international buyers, and partners with researchers to increase yield and on-farm profitability. Learn more at soyohio.org slash herewegrow. This message brought to you by Ohio Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Show your Ohio Farm Bureau pride with a new t-shirt, hat, or hoodie. Available now at
0: OFBF.org shop. The new Farm Bureau logo is now featured on a full line of clothing for men, women, kids, and babies. You can even add the Farm Bureau mark on water bottles, mugs, cell phone cases, and more. All from one spot. OFBF.org shop. A bandana for the dog, a pillow for the couch, or an apron for the grill master. OFBF.org shop. That's OFBF.org shop. Thank you, as always, for making our Ohio Weekly a part of your weekend. I'm Ty Higgins. The grill's all fired up and ready for this weekend's hot dogs, burgers, chicken, and pork chops. Potato chips and potato salad are nestled beside some fresh strawberries, and ice cream is waiting patiently for its turn in the freezer. But before you enjoy all of your 4th of July fixings, did you notice a difference in what you paid for them this year? American Farm Bureau just released their summer cookout survey to get a gauge on popular Independence Day food prices. AFBF economist Veronica and I joins us. Hi, Veronica.
9: Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Tell
0: us more about this survey and how it was conducted.
9: Well, this is a survey we've been doing for a number of years where we have our members go out to the grocery store and take a look at common items that you'd find in a picnic, and that being uh, a cheeseburger. So ground beef, cheese, buns pork chops, uh, chicken breast, potato chips, strawberries, ice cream, homemade potato salad, homemade lemonade, and pork and beans. So a you know well-rounded meal for 10 people. And then we put a cost estimate on it to say, how much is it going to take for, for you to entertain uh, and feed well 10 people in your backyard?
0: So what'd you find out about the overall grocery bill for our 4th of July festivities?
9: So this year, uh, based on uh, data from both our survey, from our members and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, we found that the total cost for uh, a meal for 10 is $59 and 50 cents. So under $6 per person uh, to have that super well-rounded and and delicious all-American meal.
0: Breaking it down by food item, what are some of the things that increased the most and what kind of
9: decreases did we see? Uh, I think for a lot of shoppers, you might be surprised that ground beef actually costs less this year than it did last year. Um, we saw a decline of eight percent in the cost of ground beef, and I'm sure you're saying, "Wait, wait, wait!" Uh, but this does see, feel like uh, you know the cost is more than than what we were experiencing in the past. And you know, I think that's uh, a lot due to the COVID impact, right? Folks are cooking more at home. Um, there's been a lot of demand for For meat products, so when we compare 2021 costs to 2019, which is probably the last time we all cooked out in a major way, um, there is there has been an increase in in the cost of meat products. So ground beef is up seven percent compared to 2019. Pork chops are up thirteen percent compared to 2019. So certainly some some increases in cost in the meat case. The other item that that probably stands out the most is the cost of fresh strawberries. So at five dollars and thirty cents uh, for for two pints of strawberries, that's up twenty two percent compared to last year, up thirty four percent compared to twenty nineteen. Uh, in a lot of ways, that's increased demand for you know for superfoods uh, that, that folks can easily consume at home and feel good about. Uh, but this year, we also saw some challenges in in early season uh, production and harvest, which is uh, certainly limiting the supply side just a little bit, which is why we're seeing, you know, a double digit increase.
0: What attributes most to the total cost of the items we buy at the grocery store and how much of that does the farmer actually see?
9: Great question. So when you compare the the total amount um, that is paid to the farmer versus um, all of the additional costs, think the marketing, the transportation, the packaging, the processing, um, the the share that actually goes to farmers is, is pretty small. And by pretty small, 8% 8% um, of the total cost of what you consume or what you buy uh, in, in food actually goes to the farmer. The other 92% is is the art of getting it to you from the farmer's gate to the grocery store.
0: When it comes to that, uh, you know, we we all ate at home a lot more over the past year and a half than than we probably ever have before. Does that farmer food dollar matter whether you're eating out or eating in?
9: Great question. Um, While the farmer's share uh, overall is is only about 8% for total uh, spent on food, the farmer's share is much higher for that food consumed at home. So 13.4% is the farmer's share for food consumed at home versus just 2.2% for food consumed away from home. So uh, despite the fact that we're paying a little bit more in 2021 compared to 2019, think we can feel good about the fact that uh, a lot more of that is going to to the farmer rather than um, the, the rest of the supply chain.
0: Veronica Nye is an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation. You can see more of the details about their 2021 summer cookout survey at FB.org. Veronica, thank you.
9: Thanks so much. Ty. I appreciate it
0: also want to thank our guests talking about past and expected future climate conditions and how farmers plan to adapt. Dr. Robin Wilson and Dr. Aaron Wilson are from Ohio State and Dr. Mary Doidge from McGill University in Montreal.
1: Our Ohio Weekly is supported by Nationwide. Nationwide is on your side and produced by Ohio Farm Bureau. Working together for Ohio farmers to advance agriculture and strengthen our communities. Be sure to visit Our Ohio Weekly's podcast page to listen to previous episodes at OFBF.org slash OurOhioWeekly.
0: Thank you for listening and happy 4th of July. I'm Ty Higgins. We'll see you down the road.